It is my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of the Big Picture series of candid conversations that I have with our portfolio companies and also with the members of the Iron Pillar Network. And the latter is why we're here today. And it's my pleasure to introduce my dear friend and a wonderful member of the IPN, Sean Atkins. How are you, Sean? I'm fantastic, and I'm, I'm very honored to be here and excited to talk to uh, the IPM Network. Awesome, awesome. Well, so let me just dive right in. Um, you've had a, a, a phenomenal journey, uh, especially within the broader media and entertainment domain. So why don't you take us through that journey and the inflection points that came along with it? Sure. You know, like I have, I think like most entrepreneurs or people you talk to, I have a atypical story in that it's not a linear from A to B. And in fact, I have a great a book I recommend to your audience to read called Range. You read that, it sort of is my story. It's like, how do you build T-shaped executives who have a lot of domain expertise and some specialization? And so, you know, to really understand my story, I always tell people, you have to understand that um, I was raised by a very entrepreneurial a set of parents uh, who were also very adventurous. My father came back from the Vietnam War and decided immediately he wanted to move his family uh, sight unseen to a small island in the middle of Micronesia. And then I was raised in the Philippines after that. And in that environment, my mom started probably three or four businesses that I helped her with. But in that same time, in the early days of Apple technology, um, I built a small side hustle uh, which was basically no longer legal, but it was cracking uh, video games and reselling them in the black market. So that was my very first entrepreneurial <laughs> venture, which my mom was oddly and understandably horrified and proud about at the same time when she when she discovered it. And so I tell people like that, that, that inciting story gets a sense of sort of like, you know, when you're raised in that environment, a very international environment, lots of fascinating inputs and a very, you know, with an American kind of culture mixed into it and an entrepreneurial parents, it's not a surprise to sort of, I came out of that environment with a very sort of eclectic view of the world, right? Very international oriented, very uh, multimodal. And so when I started my career, um, I went into at the time, I went into traditional media business. Although when I went into traditional media business, I didn't know a soul. Like everyone else, you know, I went to USC, I went to film school, uh, I went to a liberal arts school, I, I got a major in marketing and in um, cinema television production, but I didn't know anybody. So how do you break in? So. It's not an exaggerated. I did the old school through a newspaper, found a temp agency, and broke in literally through the back door. Right as a, my title was executive secretary two, and two is oh not two is better. Two is any is the lower level one. <laughs> um, and you know, and what I what I. When I got in, I got into the part of the media business, which today would probably be like, you know, the social side or the NFT side or any kind of the emerging market, Bitcoin or whatever, the emerging size. I got into the part of the traditional business, which was cable in the 90s. But it was like the thing that nobody believed in. It wasn't going to work. When I joined, I was like employee 63 uh, at a cable network we now know as Disney Channel. Um, and... It was a classic startup. Like we figured everything out. Like we did everything ourselves. Like I wrote the software for our traffic system, you know, all that stuff that you do in an early startup. And it sort of gave me the bug at an early day because I had great mentors who, who would always encourage me. Um, but if I had an idea, write it down, pitch it. And so from a very early days, I was, in, you know, I was already in this startup, but I was pitching, you know, I did the pitch to help them go internationally. Right. And funny enough, 
you know, you look at me, an Irish looking kid, my whole domain expertise was I was the only person in the building who lived internationally. So, but I understood like, hey, I really think we should explore India. I really think we should explore Asia. The product travels, there's a real market opportunity, there's demand and they're like, oh, that's it. That's interesting because no one in that building had left California, right? And so that sort of trend happened and it, you know, I, that gave me the entrepreneur bug. I left school, I left and went back to school. I got an MBA. Um, and in the, I went to the entrepreneur program uh, at USC is where I developed a company called Media Connects, where you and I met one of my great pleasures in my life. And as you know, um, we pitched the time, which is, uh, which you remember the time took us a 30 page deck to explain, right? And, hey, I can say it in one sentence. It was a yield management cloud SaaS system. Right. But people like, right. Including you were like, no one's going to let you put your data on their servers. What do you mean? Everything's delivered through a browser. That's not possible. It's all supposed to be heavy clients. What do you mean? You're going to optimize people's media spends, right? All those things we take for granted. And so the joy of that adventure we went on together is like, we really were the early architects that built what ultimately became the ad tech business as we know it. Right. But like a lot of classic entrepreneurial um, things, we were a hundred, as I tell people, like we were a hundred percent right with the hundred percent wrong timing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Literally five years too early. Everything we everything we went on the adventure to do, every one of those things came true. We were just we were we were the head of the curve. And so, you know, as every entrepreneur who goes through that, I immediately said, I'm never ever gonna build another business again. That was terrible, it was heartbreaking, I lost everything, I'm never doing it again. And so of course we know where the story ends. I went and started another company in partnership with a gentleman I met through a mentor of mine from the Disney mentors who raised me. And we started a business because we thought there was an opportunity and see if this sounds familiar where we are in the inflection point in media today, that really low cost media could be distributed on a new platform and build a business. That was now today we know that as cable and unscripted. Right. right? Reality TV, right? But those words again, 15 years ago didn't exist. And so with Arthur Smith, um, we built a Smith and co to, um, you know, a nine figure exit, which is sold to Tonopolis. It's now still the largest division of Tonopolis and actually it's all of North America today. And so it was a real, you know, from three people and I literally sat under the stairs like Harry Potter, um, to, you know, the exit of that. And then, you know, interestingly, after that, I went on a, on a run of what I would consider entrepreneurial adventure. So I went and worked at Yahoo, I helped build uh, the whole video business they had there, um, which ultimately was the number two largest other than YouTube. Mm. It's funny to say that considering where they ended up. Um, then, and I went on a bit of a tear building new video businesses. So I went to HBO, we built where we built HBO Go. Now the entire cornerstone of AT&T's media future. Right. In my vision board, <laughs> I'll be honest about it. Did not see that one coming. Um, you know, helped build uh, the early days of streaming. Uh, went through a run of that also at Discovery where I ran all of the core businesses, I'm sorry, all the business outside of the core, right? So there's the core cable business, but if it was a streaming business, I built the podcast business, the licensing business, our video gaming business, our e-commerce businesses, all the things that sort of you could build uh, sort of entrepreneurial. I kind of got to the end of that run and I got a very funny phone call from a dear friend of mine who said, hey, what do you think about trying to save MTV? And, uh, I don't know if your audience knows what age I am, but you could probably take a look at it. That is the brand of our generation, as we know. Um, so 
that's a hard thing to say no to. So I went over and spent, uh, you know, almost a couple of years helping kind of reposition the brand, um, uh, which was a really fun adventure. Um, and as I would tell people like, no, I did not hang out with rock stars. I looked at PLs all day. It's not the same thing. Um, and from that adventure that I went over, did an international stint, um, with Bertelsmann, the big holding company, which owns, you know, everything from media to publishing, to radio, to TV, to, you know, obviously internet businesses, distribution, uh, education, all the things that I have experience with. And I helped sort of um, build a global platform for their video businesses because they actually are the largest in Europe. Hmm. They did a stint in their venture arm for a while. Uh, and then brings me kind of a current state where I've, I've now working on one of my other passions is I um, help run one of the largest uh, online education platforms in the United States called WGU. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's no, a, it's focused on serving underserved populations and getting higher education. So that's where I am today. Brilliant, brilliant. By the way, the the, the last piece, uh, talk a little bit more about it and we'll come, come back to media, uh, education. You and I have had a couple of conversations on, on this particular topic. What what sort of moves you? What what gets you, what got you going in, in terms of joining this uh, this new venture? Why is education so near and dear to you, so it's, um, you it's, know, it's at the internal few, level? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So it's a few reasons. One is, um, I am a, a kid who was raised in by mostly educators. My mom started as an educator before she became an entrepreneur. My father, literally by the end of his career, was running all training for Bank of America. My siblings are all teachers. My grandparents were teachers. My my um, my godmother and my great aunt is the head librarian of Los Angeles. Like it, it, so, it, it, I used to joke to people like, "I'm the only person who comes home at Thanksgiving." They're like, "What do you do? The internet?" <laughs> like the rest of them, like entire lesson plan. So I said, "It's funny." taking this job is the first time I went home and they're like, I understand what you do. Um, so always sort of in my DNA. Second is I have a personal passion around education because it, again, it's not clear from my background. I have a disruptive personality when I look at opportunities. And I think that's one of the things you guys look in your thesis also for iron pillars, like, you know, where are their large markets, but disruptive angles to kind of bring new products either to the business side or the consumer side. And when I look at education, you know, the typical view of it is this like, well, I'm going to go sell a big product to, you know, the K through 12 school thing. And look, we all know government to government sales, while lucrative, is longly difficult, painful on all those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. And so, you know, I wasn't that interested in sort of like what I call the traditional, but more the kind of ed tech and education enablement. And so when I when I look at that, what I think the opportunity is, is that education as we know it like all businesses that ultimately transform, takes infinitely longer than you expect. But when it does happen, it feels instantaneous. And I think education is getting close to kind of that tipping point. I saw it a bunch of times in media. We've seen it a bunch of times in like, you know, the travel industry and other industries. It's just, you know, because the legacies are so ingrained, it's going to take a little bit longer. And the opportunity to go into uh, WGU, which is, I, I, is one of those, nobody realizes how big and impactful it is because it's not... They don't spend a lot of time bragging about themselves. They don't talk, talk a lot about the fact they sort of broke every single rule in higher education and online. You know, they basically invented online education for for at scale, um, mm. and a platform like that to have the impact um, is not something that happens. On the third piece is obviously with all the societal impacts economically to people who've been hurt over COVID, the social unrest we've seen on a global basis, and particularly in the U.S. and even recently within the last week. 
because their focus is helping underserved populations, it seemed like a way to bring all my skills and my passions and really kind of bring a technology and product advantage to, to a population that can really use it. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, look, uh, you know, education is the foundation on two fronts as far as I'm concerned. One, clearly in terms of quality of life improvement and breaking the cycle of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the other, quite honestly, is, you know, someone who looks like me, right? When I go to certain parts of, um, of, of even this country, uh, I, am, I am considered an alien and, and, and therefore education um, leads to understanding, it leads to empathy, it leads to embrace rather than shun, uh, which I think it could be a really powerful, um, again, foundational pillar for, for making the world a better place overall. Right. And so so kudos to you for for embarking on that uh, part of your your recent journey. Yeah, so funny. I have to laugh. I was talking to a friend of mine about it the other day because it's such a challenger brand that I work at and uh, they do things so, so differently that I was talking to someone who's actually a dean at UCLA, former dean. And he's like, you don't do anything that I used to do. So he's like, what do you do all day? I said, well, I worry about, you know, the product go to market, you know, team building vision. And I obsess about our LTV. He's like, you have the same job you've always had. <laughs> and I was like, and he, I look at him. I was like, I do. That's funny. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> so which one did you enjoy more or was it based on, you know, where you were in your life so that both were you know, equally meaningful. My favorite child. Well, it's up to uh, you to answer. You can you uh, can take the fifth, by the way, if you like. Yeah, but <laughs> I think I think like all human beings, grass is always greener, whichever one you're not currently doing, right? Um, the I loved them both, and again, and, and it's funny in my in my career, I generally kind of go between them over time. And so the right. further I get from one, the more I'm like, I kind of want to go back and do one of those again. Like the further I got from like, oh, it's just pure startups, right? And so the way I've tried to manage in my career now is that even if I'm doing something like what I'm doing now, which is very entrepreneurial and, uh, you know, I have a ton of entrepreneur clients that I'm either advising or consulting or sitting on the boards, right? So I'm trying to keep both worlds now because I like them both. Um, but I don't have a particular bias because I've done them both enough that I'm like, the trade-offs are basically equivalent. Got it. Got it. Got it. Shifting now a, a little bit more towards the domain. Uh, I mean, media and entertainment obviously is a very broad domain, and it'd be the understatement of the of the century to say it's it's changed over over the years. But but you know, some of the audience um, that may be viewing this uh, this video uh, may be entrepreneurs in the domain, right? So. What would be your 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 advice to them in particular? I mean, what should they be looking out for? What are some of the bigger challenges that may be blind spots that they haven't really thought through, whether it's you know regu regulatory or distribution centric or you know content and IP, you know whatever you want to pick. Yeah. What are what are some of the the areas that uh, entrepreneurs, especially, ought to be thinking about when they get into this particular industry? You know, it's 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 interesting. You know, the the one of the things that's happened the most uh, in the industry is this. Uh, you know, obviously the fragmentation of audience, right? Mm -hmm. So the pros to a certain extent is like basically all of a sudden you have influencers and almost anyone can build an audience. You know 
basically the sh the lightning in a bottle of somebody becoming a star, however we want to define that, a product becoming a star, can kind of happen anywhere. So all of a sudden you have in this kind of media space what used to be, whether it was a, a a &R executive in a music or a book publisher trying to find and create that moment, it's happening on a broader sense. The downside, as we know from a society, is like, there are some societal impacts if nobody has any common shared history and culture and sort of the issues that can come with that. But in that, what's interesting is that you still have this interesting splinter between the AAA monster huge, whether it's traditional media, you're the rock, or your digital media and you're Mr. Beast, like I have everything, and the kind of little mom and pop, I'm kind of making it, you know, I'm doing my YouTube show or doing, doing my Facebook show. And the middle, in both traditional and digital media, is still kind of deadish. And what I mean by that is that it, no one's cracked how do you make, which old media used to have, where the middle of the volume could make enough money, you could actually run a pretty viable business. No one's figured out as an entrepreneur, like how do you really build large scale business that don't have to be totally hit driven or just stay small? Like how can you, because right. a lot of the media businesses you and I know from whether it was cable channels or book publishers or production companies, they didn't build their business because they had like one monster hit, right? They built their business because they basically kind of kept hitting doubles and singles and doubles and singles and doubles. And that cumes up to a very, you know, if we were looking at it from a venture perspective, their portfolio diversification makes you feel more secure. Right. right? And that hasn't really been solved yet. So if I was an entrepreneur, I'd be trying to figure out like, how do I either enable the middle creator class to exist, right? Like how do I make a single mm. creator? And some of the companies I've invested in or, or advise actually try to solve this problem because it's been there for about a decade. Um, and, and I think some of the, the companies you see coming up like Cameo and, you know, Jelly right. Stack and um, are trying to address this kind of new creator. But there still isn't a centralized way to manage it you generally outside of maybe jelly smack and i'm thinking of some of the people in the music space um as a creator it's still on you to like support 27 different channels and almost any other kind of media or consumer when you get to middle scale there's services or companies that are helping you make that enable enable that even so logistics company or whatever it is so i think this sort of sort of like servicing logistics business is still in that middle area to be done I think the other the other thing uh, I would think about is, and this is probably a bit of an AI um, play, mm. is, and I have a bet with probably someone you also may know, James Hong, on this one is like you know how far are we away from like a hit, you know, movie being written by AI? Right, right. And I used to be like never. And now I'm like, we're much closer than people think. And look, I'm not one of those people that thinks that one day, you know, although I'm not going to say never, that robots are going to make all creative or whatever. But I do think that sort of the ability to enable the creative and force the cost of production down and the production value up is still a giant hole. Because like the difference, again, between I can make Avatar because I'm James Cameron, they gave me a billion dollars. Right. And, you know, I'm a mom and pop one. I just want to do a special effect. There's still a pretty big gap from a skills capability. And I think there is tremendous data being generated and learnings that can be done where I kind of call it studio 3.0. Someone should be able to start building something where essentially a lot of that process has been data enhanced or AI supplemented 
to kind of take a lot of the cost structure out and again enable that middle structure to kind of thrive again so we can get you know tell me it was like when's the last time you heard of a romantic comedy like making in a movie theater you don't because it's like a middle tier piece of content it can't scale but if i could make if i could make that thing not cost 140 million dollars right people come back same thing with publishing same thing in music so i think that is another area um, that is really interesting to me and i think it's one of the things we're closer than we think and yet still further than we think right 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 you know what's what's interesting i mean uh, obviously a fund like iron pillar we're investing in in um, you know companies that are building product from india for example for for the global global market where where do you think um you know, things like vernacular or different language content that's very localized, nuanced, et cetera. Where does that play? Do you think there are enough technologies available today in terms of production and distribution to be able to to surface really content from any part of the world to any part of the world or, or we're still I look i think we're getting better and better at it right but to use an example of that like and you know this about me already like i love bollywood right but i don't speak any of the you know native languages of india which as we all know there's far more than like one right so you know if i want to watch and so the issue is like okay well i'm willing to watch like a bollywood um you know subtitled film every once in a while Mm. It's like it's still not particularly because the music and dance is still not the greatest experience. But like, considering that that we could do um, deep fakes pretty easily, right? How far are we from if that same hit Bollywood film like coming out of Amazon instead of it just being subtitled? It's like no, no, this is literally right. Fake the deep fake the lips, and it's now in. You want it in French? It's in French. I don't think we're that far. And I think those sort of things could potentially be really interesting inflection points. And particularly as the large scale platforms get better and better at marketing and understanding their consumers. Look, I still think you're always gonna have in content endemic advantage to um, culturally similar populations, right? Like they're, you know, um, yeah. and, And will there be kind of cross um, cross population. Yeah. But let's, let's be fair. The American cinema as the voice of like cinema and entertainment on a global basis, isn't that way because we have, we're the only people who know great storytelling. That's completely inherently untrue, right? Like all the great religions came from the middle East. So storytelling started somewhere, not here. Right. Uh, but because it had the capital and efficiencies from a distribution, that it was all the exposure most of us grew up with. Me in the Philippines, still that man, I still love a wonderful soapy Filipino melodrama like any good Filipino does. <laughs> so ninety percent of what was in the theater was a Rocky film or Star Wars. Right. So, you know. So, but in certain cultures, and I do believe this is a, this is an advantage, um, particular for India. You're talking about a population that you know has a higher Western affinity. I always remind people the largest English speaking country in the world. Right. Right. So I do think the crossover at scale is most likely to happen between India and the rest of the world. Mm. Partially because we can make the same arguments um, from a population perspective with China, but China carries the baggage. They need large amount of, the, uh, from a geopolitical perspective, a large amount of the world distrust their culture, their cultural product, not because it isn't great, because they're like, 
I don't know how much a fan I am about a state controlled, right? right? Right. Not that India is, you know, a flawless government or the U.S. is a flawless government, you know, less control over the kind of the breadth of creativity that comes out of there. So I do think if any country has a big shot, I would bet on India before I bet on something like Germany, also because I don't want to watch depressing stuff all the time. All right, we won't we won't go there, um, but look, I mean, I, this has been this has been absolutely wonderful. Just just final uh, couple of tidbits. Um, one, you know, what got you excited about, uh, let's say, the Iron Pillar Network? Uh, besides my good looks, that's that's a given. But uh, but beyond that, what uh, you know, was it an affinity for for entrepreneurs? Was it something else? Um, yeah, just, look, just I mean, love to know. first of all, like like any great person who's done investing, you look at team, right? And the Iron Pillar team is that's an impressive team with an incredible track record, right? That even before you've had your initial successes with your first fund and your first tranche of companies, right? The background of the team that came together really, I thought, brought a diversity of skills and different capabilities together that sort of, you know differentiated it from a lot of the other kind of investing vehicles I saw. And your early thesis and movement on very interesting companies in India, right? It's like, you know, now it's sexy for everyone to do it, right? Like, but there's yeah. advantage to, you know, the reputation I know you guys have as on both sides of the, both sides of the Pacific in, in uh, uh, within the, within India, within the Indian population here and the U S companies that look at that thing. So that's the other, and look, I love entrepreneurs. There's not clear, like, I love building companies. I love the breadth of the conversations you can have. And as you and I know from having these conversations, right? At the end of the day, building great companies, it's about great team. It's about go to market. It's about how do you systematize for scale, right? It's those things are consistent and uniform. And so for our affiliate, you find a team that's good at identifying that in the niches in, in within a large market. It seems sort of self-explanatory to me. Well, you're too kind. You are too kind. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your endorsement, um, your your participation in the network. We're honored and um, and and privileged to to have you as part of it. So thank you again, Sean. Be well and uh, and take care. All right. Awesome.